The Democratic Party was either complicit in or leading, in many cases, a lot of the neoliberal ideas and policies that have created the inequality that we find in our economy today. The Democratic Party is the most important political party in the world. That's why it's especially important today that the Democrats develop a backbone, stand for something, and provide a real alternative to the Republicans. It's really important for Democrats to think about what we want to be in the future. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. It's like Econ 101 without all the BS. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. Well, Paul, today we get to bring back our old friend, James Kwok, Professor James Kwok, who uh, wrote that fantastic book, Economism, a couple of years ago. And just to remind listeners, uh, Economism was a book about, you know, what we call Econ 101-ism or otherwise known as neoliberalism. It's this set of ideas that are loosely based on neoclassical economics, like uh, raising wages kills jobs and people are paid what they're worth. And the only methodology that works in structuring a human economy is through markets and so on and so forth. And, and that was a super interesting book. And he's just written essentially a new book. Is it, does he call it a book? He does call it a book. It's an interesting setup here. He's got a book called Take Back Our Party, Restoring the Democratic Legacy. And the way he released it was as a series on the American prospect. Oh, so yeah. uh, he he yeah. felt he had something to say about this immediate moment, political moment, yeah. uh, as we head into 2020. And the publishing industry uh, is so painfully slow <laughs> that the only way he could do it was to go through a magazine. Um, and it's, it's an incredible document, this book, because... You know, you've heard all of the arguments before, I think, Nick, and I think that many of our our listeners have heard a right. lot of the, the, the sure. facts and the figures that he's building on and take back our party. But it's a really intelligently and elegantly structured argument that the Democratic Party has just failed in this moment. And the cool thing, I mean, the important part of this effort, I think, is acquainting Democrats, and this is very painful for a lot of people, mm -hmm. acquainting Democrats with the degree to which the Democratic Party was either complicit in or leading, in many cases, a lot of the neoliberal ideas and policies that have created the inequality that we find in our economy today. And I think that's the, that's the big lift here and the important lift. And I think that, you know, the central point he's making is there, you know, there used to be a party of big business and rich people, mm -hmm. <laughs> the Republicans, yeah, uh, and a party of the people, the Democrats. And at some point, that kind of went away, that we both became parties of the economic elite, and the rest is history. And yeah. that, that was a serious screw up. And it'll be fun to talk to James about how that happened, and why that happened, and who led those changes. 
Yeah, and I guess you know uh, here is where we would put in a trigger warning if you're uh, <laughs> if you're a, a Democrat who doesn't like to hear criticism of the Democratic Party, then um, yeah. this episode is for you. Uh, it will upset you, but uh, I think it's it's really important, especially at this moment when we're releasing this episode, for Democrats to think about where the party has failed and succeeded and what we want to be in the future. So, Nick, I think it's helpful before we talk to Professor Kwok to give some real life examples of neoliberalism in the Democratic Party. Uh, We have some examples from Bill Clinton, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton framing policies and ideas in, in a neoliberal way. The first example we have is President Bill Clinton during his 1996 State of the Union when he's talking about the importance of limited government. We must answer here three fundamental questions. First, how do we make the American dream of opportunity for all a reality for all Americans who are willing to work for it? Second, how do we preserve our old and enduring values as we move into the future? And third, how do we meet these challenges together as one America? We know big government does not have all the answers. We know there's not a program for every problem. We know and we have worked to give the American people a smaller, less bureaucratic government in Washington. And we have to give the American people one that lives within its means. The era of big government is over, but we cannot go back to the time when our citizens were left to fend for themselves. The idea of limited government is intrinsically neoliberal. It's taking this idea that Ronald Reagan uh, popularized that all government is bad government and the role of government should be to shrink itself to a point where it can basically be uh, taken away entirely at some some point in the future. Bill Clinton took this limited government idea and ran with it and under the auspices of bipartisanship basically affirmed the the reality in America that government is a bad thing. There's a famous Ronald Reagan quote from 1986. He said, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Bill Clinton took that joke and turned it into policy, which is kind of the quintessential neoliberal move. Our next example is Barack Obama. A lot of critics on the left today argue that Barack Obama wasn't as liberal a president as he may have seemed at the time. And in retrospect, this does seem pretty clear. Uh, Here's a clip from his inaugural address in 2009 that shows that he was already coming into office with a Clintonian or neoliberal framing in his approach to government. The question we ask today is not whether our government is too big or too small, but whether it works, whether it helps families find jobs at a decent wage care they can afford, a retirement that is dignified. Where the answer is yes, we intend to move forward. Where the answer is no, programs will end. And those of us who manage the public's dollars will be held to account to spend wisely, reform bad habits, and do our business in the light of day, because only then can we restore the vital trust between a people and their government. Nor is the question before us whether the market is a force for good or ill. Its power to generate wealth and expand freedom is unmatched. But this crisis has reminded us that without a watchful eye, the market can spin out of control. 
President Obama, of course, is a writer and is uh, a lot more eloquent than Bill Clinton in his, especially in his speeches. Clinton tended to go off book and riff a fair amount. So it's a little bit harder to parse out what Obama was saying there. But at the center of that clip, he is saying that the market is unquestionably a force for good. He's making a case for a little bit of regulation. He's maybe stepping back just a tiny bit from Bill Clinton, but he is making some pretty huge assumptions about the economy in his inaugural speech that place the market and not the middle class at the center of of the economy. By doing so, he's sort of setting the stage for what he then went on to do with the, the bailouts by bailing up banks and leaving homeowners to twist in the wind uh, when their mortgages were put in peril. What he's doing here is, is laying the case for a very market-centered economy that then would trickle down and help the American middle class, which is arguably the biggest economic failing of his administration. And it's right there in, in his sort of opening statement. And you can also see this in the Affordable Care Act, which used markets and the private sector to achieve a public good, by which I mean the government has a very limited role in healthcare under the ACA. It is basically used to sort of funnel the unquestionable good of the private sector to people. Its role is basically distribution, not um, actually affecting outcomes the way that a single-payer health care plan would. Right in his inaugural speech, you can see his opinions on, on how the economy works, and it's a very neoliberal understanding of the economy. And our final example is uh, from Hillary Clinton in one of her 2016 debates with uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. Clinton, again, here is is leaning more towards the Obama flavor of neoliberalism as opposed to the, the Bill Clinton version. But uh, listen to this. I think what Senator Sanders is saying certainly makes sense in the terms of the inequality that we have. But we are not Denmark. I love Denmark. We're the United States of America, and it's our job to rein in the excesses of capitalism so that it doesn't run amok and doesn't cause the kind of inequities that we're seeing in our economic system. But we would be making a grave mistake to turn our backs on what built the greatest middle class in the history Senator of the world. Senator Sanders. This is something that actively bothered me at the time, I remember, uh, when she says that we're not Denmark in America. And she doesn't explain that. She doesn't say why we're not Denmark, what qualities make America different from Denmark, uh, why it wouldn't be possible to do it. She just says we're not we're not Denmark. Um, the implication here is that our version of market capitalism delivers prosperity. Uh, it subscribes to the America's the greatest nation on earth. Um, and therefore, we are inherently different somehow. But where she lands on this is she's talking about how she's reaffirming Obama's inherent idea that government's role should be limited in controlling the markets of healthcare and stripped down to basically a distribution model and at worst case, uh, a referee who decides uh, which way the market should flow. And it's building on the Obama idea that that government should be a limited actor to not even harness the private markets, but to sort of funnel it to where it can do the, they can do the most good. Like with Obama, uh, Hillary Clinton's case sounds kind of believable from the outside. It sounds a lot like what we're saying here at Pitchfork Economics, because we believe in capitalism in general. 
But I think the important distinction to make is that Clinton said that the economy built the strongest middle class in the history of the world, whereas we believe that the strongest middle class in the history of the world is what built the American economy and what makes the American economy great. It puts the cart before the horse, to use a cliche, by uh, saying that middle class economic strength is a consequence of a strong market, whereas it's really the other way around. And that's the central distinction between progressive thinking, liberal thinking, and this sort of neoliberal apologist for the market thinking that uh, Kwok is talking about in his great book and uh, what we talk about on this podcast when we talk about neoliberalism. And now that we're all on the same page, here's Professor James Kwok. My name is James Kwok. I'm a professor at the Yukon School of Law, and I just finished a book called Take Back Our Party, Restoring the Democratic Legacy. In your book, you make an argument that is even, how should I say it, spicier than the <laughs> argument that we traditionally make, which is that the world has been taken over by neoliberalism, what you call the economism in your last book. Yes. But you're making it even sharper argument, which is that it wasn't just Republicans. In fact, it was Democrats, too. And that in many ways, the degree to which neoliberalism infected the Democratic Party was perhaps more harmful to citizens and certainly harmful to the Democratic Party than people understand or sort of give credit to. I think so. I mean, I think Democrats play a crucial role in this story. I mean, to put it in context, of course, in many ways, the conservatives are worse, more ridiculous, more ideological, more given to, you know, taking the side of the wealthy. But I think that's, in a sense, that's to be expected. In yes. every two-party system, you're going to have a party of the rich, you're going to have a party of big business, and the counterweight is supposed to be the party of the people, the party of ordinary people, the party of workers, whatever. And we used to sort of have one, not quite in the Western uh, European social, social democratic sense, but FDR, LBJ, you know, we had, we had that party, and that was the counterweight to the conservative zealots. And I think that counterweight has vanished, might be too strong a word, but it's certainly gotten swept along. It's become, Shriveled. you know, it's become Might be a second a good party word. of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, right now, with no exaggeration, the Democratic Party is the most important political party in the world. I mean, the Republicans are just gone and, you know, far gone beyond just economism, what I talked about with you last time, certainly with Trumpism. I think they're beyond hope at this point. The impeachment is only making that more clear. And that's why it's, it's especially important today that the Democrats <laughs> develop a backbone, stand for something, and provide an alter a real alternative to the Republicans. Uh, because, again, they're the only, uh, you know, I don't believe we're going to have a viable third party in my lifetime. <laughs> the Democrats are the only hope we've got, I think, in, in this political system, sad as it is to say. Can you talk us through a little bit how neoliberalism came to eat the brains of the Democratic Party and sort of how we got to this place? You know, the rise of conservative economic thinking on, on the right among the Republicans is, is well known. It's been documented a lot. And I think among the Democrats, it was largely a case of it was it was two things. It was me tooism. You know, they saw how successful Ronald Reagan was, which is very with his very simple message. You know, in these in these times, government is not the solution. Government is the problem. And then I think the other aspect, and one thing I think that uh, is somewhat original to my book, not entirely, is the idea that the Democratic Party, from essentially from the, the Democratic Leadership Council, from Bill Clinton onwards, 
you know how people often construct their identities in opposition to what they don't want to be? They did not want to be the old Democratic Party, which they saw as a party of welfare, redistribution, you know, union bosses, welfare queens, poor people, factory workers. That was the image of the, of the Democratic Party that Ronald Reagan foisted on them. And instead of fighting back, they kind of accepted that. And they said, well, we, we don't like that either. <laughs> we want to be a new Democratic Party. The, the quest of the new Democrats, the Democratic Le- Leadership Council, Clinton, Gore, Benson, those people, was to come up with a new Democratic identity that was not unions and welfare, but at the same time was not just conservative republicanism. They knew they had to, they couldn't just completely copy the Newt Gingrich uh, contract on America. In a political sense, it was very successful. They created this new platform. They said, we're the party of growth and innovation and finance and technology and a bright new future when everyone's going to have, you know, a high skill job and college education and economic growth will benefit everybody. And that was the story. And I think it was a, you know, it was a compelling message. The problem is, is that, you know, it was kind of empty as policy and, and it, it failed uh, for reasons we can talk about. And that, that I think was the crucial moment when they said, okay, um, Carter was crushed, Mondale was crushed. We don't want to go back to being the party of the New Deal and Social Security and workers. We want something new. They chose this new identity. And, and in doing so, they became, you know, they became the second party of, cop, of capital. As, Lee, you know, as Gingrich moved the Republicans to the right, the Democrats basically took the space that used to be occupied by Rockefeller Republicans. That's the two-party system we have today. In their defense, they were surrounded by very smart-sounding neoclassical economists who were telling them that markets were perfectly efficient and people were perfectly rational and tax cuts for rich people created growth and there was a absolute and direct trade-off between increasing wages and the number of jobs and all sorts of other crap uh, that <laughs> was you know consistent internally consistent but not true and you know i think people bought it i mean i know they bought it like they just thought it was true and so the political narratives and policies that they adopted were consistent with those beliefs and and the rest is history yeah exactly i mean i think that a lot of these people were well meaning and a lot of them were certainly very smart and well educated beginning at the top you know with bill clinton and and his and his staff and you know i say at the end of i think the end of chapter 1 chapter 1 describes the kind of the transformation of the Democratic Party. And I say at the end, essentially, this was a coherent vision, right? The vision was, Mm -hmm. what we're going to do is we're just going to manage the economy better. And if we manage the economy right, if we make markets work, and if we, you know, it was a doctrine of, of growth and opportunity, right? If we make markets work, so we have more economic growth. And if we help people, disadvantaged people, by helping them get a better education, basically, when they say opportunity, they mean education. Yes. We'll let everybody tap into this growth. And I say at the end of the first chapter, this is, yes, this is the Republican vision, but it's not nonsensical on its face. Uh, it kind of makes logical sense. Yeah. But that's why I think it's then important to say, okay, now it's 25, 30 years later, let's look at what happened. And I think we all know what's happened. I mean, the 1% has done fabulously well. And the, you know, the, the 75th to 99th percentile has done pretty well, and everyone else has done poorly. Um, so we've had growth, and it hasn't trickled down. 
and uh, we have, you know, as we as we know, deep-seated economic insecurity. And I think their vision, in a sense, they had a chance, and it failed. Yeah. One of the really interesting things that I've experienced, and I'll bet you many of our listeners have experienced, is that when you suggest, when as a Democrat, you suggest to other Democrats that we have been complicit in this um, shit show, uh, people get very angry and defensive. So it would be fun if you could give some examples of what we did and where we went wrong that were specific to give, uh, you know, to frame out a little bit more what what we mean. So, I mean, the, the two examples that come most readily to mind are probably familiar to some of the audience. I'll try to be quick. I mean, the most obvious is financial deregulation. I, I won't spend more than 30 seconds on that, but uh, from essentially from the late 1980s until the you know early 2000s financial deregulation was entirely a bipartisan affair uh you know led by uh, co-led by by republicans and democrats led by bill clinton and his treasury department um and the landmark pieces of legislation we think of like the graham leach bliley act which overturned the glass-steagall act and the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, which deregulated derivatives, these were under Democratic administrations. And, you know, with the consequences um, that we all know, I think well, not ju- we did not just have a housing bubble and a collapse in this scary moment in 2008, but the, the long-term kind of wealth effects of the, of the, of the financial crisis and, and Great Recession were, were extremely inequality increasing, because at the very top, People's wealth is largely based on their stock portfolios, which, as we know, have tripled or maybe quadrupled, I'm not sure, since 2009. And in the middle class and below, people's wealth is basically due to the value of their houses, which have not come back. Um, Second example, again, probably familiar to much of the audience is uh, welfare reform, um, which was, again, a bipartisan accomplishment. In 1992, Bill Clinton essentially ran to the right of George Bush on welfare reform, saying, I mean, his his uh, catchphrase was two years and you're off. You get two years of benefits and then and then you're done. You can't get cash assistance. And a lot of research has gone into to welfare reform, the effects. And I would say that um, I, I think no one would argue it was inequality increasing in the sense that some people on welfare with better educations, better health, more stable family situations were able to get jobs and work, but essentially at the, you know, the bottom 40% or so of welfare recipients were not able to get jobs. A lot of them have been cut off from cash assistance, and we've had this explosion in the number of people in extreme poverty. So I'll mention those two just, just to take to give me 30 seconds. I just want to mention Obamacare as well. Obamacare, I think, was, was a step forward. It was certainly an improvement on what we had before, but I think it, it's, a, it's an example of the kind of technocratic, democratic solution, which is we want everyone to have health insurance. We want everyone to afford it. To me, that sounds like, you know, we need a national a national government program where you pay taxes based on your income and everybody gets health care. But no, we decided to do it by harnessing the power of private markets in these exchanges. We have this extremely complicated system, which I think is bound to fail in five to 10 years, essentially because it doesn't have the ability to control costs. So I think, as people know, the the scandal of today is not not just that people are uninsured. The number of people who are uninsured declined and has since stabilized, but that many people who nominally have insurance can't afford it because all of the costs are being shifted to the back end, to deductibles and, and co-payments. So, again, Obamacare was better than nothing, but it's an example of how of how 
dedicated this generation of democratic policymakers was to the idea that we have to, it's, we always have to use the private sector and markets. And it's an example, I think, of the limits of that, of that approach. You know, it is true for me as a 43-year-old man to say that Obama was the best president of my lifetime, <laughs> but also that he, uh, you know, was a disappointment and that he continued these neoliberal policies. But when I say that, people get very upset, um, Democrats, and yes. there's a lack of sort of introspection in the party and a, and a refusal to accept criticism. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk about, you know, what kind of reception you've gotten with this piece and if you have any ideas for how people can critique the party with minimizing the, the sort of uh, pushback from Democrats. I'm not sure I have a good answer to that last question. I'll see if <laughs> okay. I can think of one. I mean, the challenge is that Barack Obama was a rock star. And I think looking back, you know, I, I would say among the politically astute left, Obama's image is very equivocal at this point. I mean, many people have negative opinions of Obama. Uh, Obama is the, the challenge. I mean, looking back, even back to 2006, 2007, you know, I was, I initially supported John Edwards, not, not Obama. Of course, John Edwards turned out to be awful in many ways. (laughs) Uh, but, But my opinion of Barack Obama from the beginning is this man is a moderate. And I believe there's actually a quote, which I, 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 I've heard it said that Barack Obama himself said during the campaign, essentially something to the effect of, I am a screen on which other people project what they want to see. And people wanted to see, because he was an African-American, the first African-American president, which is an enormous accomplishment, they wanted to see the next Abraham Lincoln. You know, they wanted to see the next FDR. And Barack Obama, he was, he's from the same mold as Bill Clinton and Tim Geithner and Larry Summers and, and all of them, right? He's an extremely educated, extremely smart, extremely ambitious uh, meritocrat. You know, he was the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Law Review. Um, the people who want to be editor-in-chief of the Harvard Law Review are basically people who are driven by ambition and making the next, the next rung on the ladder. Um, and that is, that's perhaps beside the point. He had this political magic, right? He was able to govern as a centrist and to do things like, you know, negotiate a grand bargain with John Boehner, which of course fell through, in which he offered a decrease in Social Security benefits, right? He was able to do all of this while, because of his image and his charisma, uh, posing as a, you know, as a man of the people. Because of that, his, his legacy, his image is, you know, it's sacrosanct <laughs> among a lot of, of Democrats, which is causing problems in this primary right now, right? Because people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders cannot criticize Barack Obama. And all Joe Biden has to do is say, I was Barack Obama's vice president. And, you know, it's interesting. There are specific issues on which many Democrats now say Obama was wrong, like deporting, you know, he deported more immigrants than anyone before him. And Afghanistan, right? Now it's pretty clear that, that he, was, he was part of the unnecessary perpetuation of Afghanistan. But he has, this, he has this magical charisma. People say, okay, he may have been wrong about this, he may have been wrong about that, but he was a great man. Yeah, but at least he could string a sentence together. <laughs> well, well that's, I mean, also in comparison to his predecessor and his successor. Yeah, because, yeah, right. You know, as Paul said, there's no comparison. Yeah. Whom would I rather have as president? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, but it, it is highly problematic politically because he did govern as a neoliberal. Yeah. Um, and Hillary Clinton ran as a neoliberal. <laughs> yeah. And now Joe Biden is running. I wouldn't say he's running as a neoliberal, but Joe Biden is, is running as a return to the good old days yeah. of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah. 
pretty much. Yeah, and, and what I would say is that I think that, you know, I said earlier the Democratic Party is the most important party in the world. And I think, that, you know, the my very high-level impression of the past 30 years of politics has been Republicans are in power, they move the country to the right. Democrats are in power, we kind of hold the line for a while. <laughs> and then we know the Republicans will come back into power and move the party to the right. And so, sure, Biden, Biden would be better than Trump. There's absolutely no question. Yeah. But I don't, I don't feel like Joe Biden is going to move the country, is going to undo much of the damage of the past 20 years. And at some point, a Republican will win again. <laughs> That's right. I mean, the reason that I think that, in particular, the policy agenda of people like Elizabeth Warren is so indispensable to the success, future success of the party is, and the country, frankly, is that only by enacting policies that ambitious can you make a significant enough difference in the lives of ordinary citizens for people to again conclude, A, that government can make a difference in their lives yeah. that's positive, yeah. and B, that the Democratic Party stands for more than being just feckless corporate stooges too. Yeah. And in the absence of that kind of material, substantive sort of vivid change, you know, bad things will happen, both to the country and to the party. There, there are two good points you raise. I mean, one is that even to the extent that the Obama administration did things that were good as opposed to bad, I'm not an expert on this, other people have written more about it, they tend to do it in ways that people were not aware of. So as I recall, there was the, I think the, there was a payroll tax cut, which was intended as an economic stimulus. And they purposefully made it invisible by essentially by reducing people's withholding, whereas George W. Bush sent people a check. Correct. And this was done probably for the best economic intentions. But even when the Obama administration used the power of government, they disguised it and they rhetorically talked about innovation and the private sector <laughs> and all of these things. The second thing I'll say, you know, building on what you said about the, you know, the Warren um, policy platform is that, uh, this is something I say in the book, I think that the Democrats did a lot of things for ordinary people from the 1930s through the 1960s, maybe early 1970s, when we still controlled Congress. And those real material improvements in people's lives, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and so on, um, people felt those. People understood that the government was helping them. And, and there was a you know, 20, 25-year uh, lag. What I mean by that is for 20, 25 years, people still thought the Democratic Party had their backs, even when, the, the, when they were not really doing anything for them. But that wears off eventually. Yeah. And what I feel like has happened in the past few years is, you know, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi stand up and they say, we're all about jobs and workers and, you know, the 99%, not the 1%, and no one believes them. <laughs> and so it will take a long time of, as you say, of actual policy to, yes, as you say, first of all, get people to believe that government can do something for them and also get people to believe that the Democrats actually care about them instead of just counting on the votes in, in November, which, as we found out, we can't count on them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And, you know, like, again, I talked to lots of Democrats who simply cannot understand why other people do not believe that the Democratic Party is on their side. But, you know, like you, you have to only point out things like like the biggest impact on wages for working people over the last 10 years has been the increases in the minimum wage. Yeah. But the Democratic Party 
had nothing to do with that. <laughs> yes. Like literally yeah. nothing to do with the increases yeah. that have happened in the minimum wage. The $15 minimum wage was not a product of the Democratic Party. It's all been local. It's all been activists acting independent of the party. Now, some of those activists may have been Democrats, but, you know, it took the United States Senate six years, I think, uh, to agree that a $15 minimum wage was a good idea. Of course, Barack Obama was president for eight years, and the highest he ever talked about raising the minimum wage was to 1010 at the very end at the very end of his term and you know people wonder why working people don't think we're on their side you right. know it's just it's just nuts at the moment we do have some democrats who've who i think largely agree with you and and have these populist ideas let's call them for the sake of pulling it out of the primary and making it a larger conversation about the party like the the aoc wing of the party right where they're talking about a broader populist economic standpoint but there are still plenty of you know elites or or neoliberals i guess the the question is how do you see the party moving forward is there a way to keep the the you know keep save us from the neoliberal strike back what do you think is going to happen this is you know this is perhaps the most controversial thing that i think and say and that is that i often think we need to learn from the conservatives and there's certain things we should not learn from them like you know divisive politics and turning one set of Americans against another. And there are two, I think. One is that the conservatives figured out, okay, in the 1950s, they were completely in the wilderness. They said, we have to have bold ideas. You know, we have to say things like, you know, government regulation is bad. The free market will solve everything. We need bold ideas and we need to stand for something. And people have to know what we stand for. for. And even if, you know, even if we're a small minority, that's okay. We have to, we have to have faith that we can convince people and they will move in our direction. And the second thing I think, and this is probably the most controversial thing I'll say, is that the conservatives, in my in my opinion, and I'm simplifying slightly, uh, but they felt it was more important to stand for something than to get every single vote in the next election. And you know, the history of the the conservatives is is pri- they primaried the moderates, even when it meant that they were going to give, that they were increasing the chances that the Democrats would get the seat because they were you know, putting up uh, conservatives instead of moderates. And in the long run, they've been, this is the, this is the success story of our lifetimes when it comes to politics. I mean, it's, it's, they've achieved more than, more than, you know, uh, Barry Goldwater could possibly have imagined possible. So I think that on the democratic side, so perhaps we don't want to go to that entirely to that extreme, but on the Democratic side, we are so terrified of losing any independent voter, and we are so dedicated to this mythical median voter who doesn't actually exist, um, that, you know, you know, the, the rhetoric is, is always about unity and avoiding factionalism and, you know, making sure that we, we unite behind the person who's most able to beat Trump, which is code for Joe Biden. Um, and, in the best case, what does it give us? You know, the last time we had, we had the presidency in both houses of Congress was 2009-2010. Party policy was being dictated by Joe Manchin. Right. It's almost, that's, why, that's why when we are in power, we can't achieve anything, because we, we are willing to let, basically we're willing to let conservatives into the party and let them hold the balance of power. And I just don't see the point. Yeah. So yeah. I think we need to, that's what I think. And it's very controversial. 
You know, people will say Supreme Court abortion. We, you know, we have to win it. every election. is like the most important election of our lives. We have to win this. We have to make any compromise to do so. And that's not what the conservatives did. And that's all I'll say. It's, it's not how they ran the last 50 years. Right. Yeah, no, it's so true. And, you know, the other the other big challenge is, you know, just the sociology of, you know, how politics were. You know, I spend a lot of time with rich people. And mm-hmm. if you're sitting around in a 20 million dollar ski home talking about politics with a bunch of friends, it's remarkable how many people agree that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would be terrible for the country and mm-hmm. makes them not want to be Democrats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the problem, of course, is <laughs> that uh, Democratic politicians spend a lot of time raising money yeah. in those houses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, it's very challenging. It's not just the money, by the way. It's the, you know, it's it's easy to be persuaded Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. A, uh, you know, a group of earnest, smart, successful people that a wealth tax is a bridge too far when it you know, I'm, probably I'm isn't. I'm glad you say that. Yeah, I'm glad you say that, Nick, because obviously you've been among a lot of rich people. I've been among a lot of rich people. And, and there is a – I think it's human nature when you are – no matter who you are. Unless you're Bernie Sanders, who I think just doesn't give a damn, right? I think it's human nature when you're with these titans of the private sector who have made billions of dollars to, I don't know, partially, maybe a little bit to want their approval, but also to think that they have valuable things to say. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, when I was a young person in the business world, you know, you meet a CEO, and the first time you meet the CEO of this big public company, you're like, wow, this guy must be a genius. And then, you know, after you meet 20, 10 or 20 CEOs, you start thinking, okay, not, not so much. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. you know, we have this cult of wealth in this country. And, and you're right, it's not just the money. It's, you know, if, if every Wall Street banker is telling me that Elizabeth Warren is going to mean the end of the world, then they must be right. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You know? One of the questions we always ask our guests, uh, James, is why you do this work? What motivates you? And I've only had an intellectual career for about a decade. And at the beginning, it was very exciting to see my name in print and have lots of lots of uh, web page hits and get my name in books. And that was gratifying. Uh, this book, I would say that more than anything I've written in the past, I, I wrote because I really felt it needed to be written at this moment. My previous books have been largely about Republicans and what they have done, because as I said earlier, the conservatives have been the driving force in American politics and policy in my lifetime. And to understand the problems we face today, I think you have to understand the damage that they have they have wrought on our country. But as I said earlier, right now, the, the Democrats are our, our best last hope for um, you know resisting the tide of conservatism and, and Trumpism and, and whatever whatever else may come come later. And I felt like, in a sense, this debate over the future of the Democratic Party is one of the most important debates we have right now. And uh, I wanted to say what I had to say on the topic. I also wanted to get it out before the Democratic primary, uh, which is the reason I didn't didn't, uh, go with a traditional publisher, which would have taken until next next summer. 2023. um, Yes, exactly. So there are a lot of voices out there, a lot of people saying good things, a lot of people saying less good things. Um, and it's hard to know. I've been around the block enough to know that it's hard to know what difference one person can make. But this time I felt like I had to try. 
That's awesome. Well, James, thank you so much for uh, chatting you. with us. It's just a fascinating conversation, and, uh, and we uh, appreciate your work and making these arguments. Thank you very much. Same to you. Okay, thanks, Paul. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye. So that was a super fun and interesting conversation, sure to antagonize a lot of neoliberal Democrats. Um, it, but, you know, Paul, one of the things that um, struck me about our conversation with James was the use of the word moderate, which is yeah. something we thought a lot about here. It's true. Yeah. And, and, you know, to us, m- what moderation has come to mean in the Democratic Party is balancing the economic interests of the top 1%. Against everybody else, yeah, that's what moderate is. It's 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 basically conservatism. It's, it's it is figuring out you know figuring yeah. out the 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 way to make the least waves in the bathtub. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 for sure, how to govern without materially antagonizing economic elites. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that you know you, you, we mess around at the edges, and that's moderation. But uh, you know it, or centrism. That's another word that's often used. And I, I, and we strongly believe that true centrism means governing towards the middle, towards the center, and right. that, that enacting policies and building narratives that benefit the broad middle of society, which means that, that policies like raising the minimum wage a lot mm-hmm. uh, that seem not moderate really at the end of the day are yeah. <laughs> that, that, that they, you know, that if you raise the minimum wage high enough so that it actually affects the center of the income distribution, that's centrist. If you raise it just a tiny little bit <laughs> so it doesn't antagonize rich people, that's not moderation. That's capitulation. Right. Right. <laughs> that's appeasement in the face of the neoliberal onslaught. Yeah. It's it's another way to look at it would be that it that it uh, the the feathers that it ruffles are only the feathers of the 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 richest Americans. And, you know, if you're if you're pissing off those people, then you're probably doing something right correct. at this point in the economy. Correct. Correct. And I did, you know, in the conversation, I did allude to being among rich people uh, who, you know, substantially agree that things like a wealth tax uh, are anti-American and. Right, they're bad for everyone. For, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure they're they're they've got my best interests yeah, at heart when exactly. they're in Aspen discussing how the wealth tax is going to hurt them. Yeah. Um, uh, but what I sometimes do and sometimes don't remind them is if they didn't hate it, if people like me don't hate it, we're probably on the wrong track. <laughs> you know, like, Eat your spinach. Yeah. 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 So we're we're clearly at this moment in the party where we're kind of at a crossroads, and I think a, a super good example of that has to do with uh, the New York Times uh, uh, presidential candidate endorsement. Uh, Say more. As a lot of people know, they had a TV show where they announced their endorsement, and much to everyone's surprise, they couldn't bring themselves to endorse a single candidate. Instead, they endorsed uh, Elizabeth Warren, who is a you know progressive candidate, and they simultaneously endorsed Amy Klobuchar, who is about the most sort of, you know, uh, moderate in the traditional sense of the word candidate. Yeah. So there is, there is not 
I mean, just setting aside the idea of a dual endorsement in the primary is being dumb uh, because you are telling people to vote a certain way. They picked two candidates who couldn't be more separate, who couldn't be more uh, 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 different from each other uh, in terms of policy, in terms of what they envision for the country. Like it, it is impossible to to you can't make a a clear case of what you think you should politically do with these two candidates yeah. like there's nothing you can triangulate from that that makes any sense at all and i feel like that is what the democratic party is doing right yeah, now it's is, trying to sort itself out and by the way we i mean we like amy she's a very yes. capable woman she was nice enough to stop by the office when she was last in town and we had a great chat with her about policy and politics, but that she could not be more different than Elizabeth Warren. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, I, I'm not saying that, that she's, you know, that she's a, she's a Republican or no. that anything like that. But I am saying that, that there is exactly, there is, there is a lot of difference between her and Warren and, yeah. and a, president Klobuchar's America looks very different from president Warren's America. And for you to endorse both of them at the same time yeah. is, mind-boggling it's impossible yeah it speaks to the schizophrenia that's going on right now as as we sort of collectively sort out what what the democratic party stands for and what it what it means to be a democrat and you know and i'll tell you the other thing that james said that i that i truly love and think is right is that the democratic party is the most important party in the world today Mm-hmm. because it's it will sort of set the standard be be the standard bearer for the alternative to trickle down economics and neoliberalism and authoritarianism right and this plutocratic white vision of the future mm-hmm. and the democratic party has to figure out how you blend pluralism and an alternative to neoliberalism into a narrative and a message that you know that uh, a majority of citizens can get behind yeah and and the good news is that visions are forming of what this right. might look like and there there are people out there who are promoting this vision in a way that would would have been politically unthinkable almost uh, well, 4 4 years 3. ago 3.5 years ago yeah exactly yeah. so 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 there there's an actual yeah. discussion about the about the values that the democratic party wants to have um and the policies that we need to to move forward the thing that I think is maybe the greatest danger comes back to that New York Times endorsement and that you can't have your cake and eat it too. Right. And so you've got to make a choice. Yes. <laughs> no, people hate to make choices. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so so that's really the challenge I think we're facing in the next few months as a party yeah. as we yeah. move forward. Well, it was great to talk to James and it's great to see him uh, continuing to write. He's uh, a ridiculously smart and articulate spokesperson for these ideas yeah and i hope this essay doesn't get him banned from the uh, yeah. from the rooms where the people who need to hear it most uh work and live yeah so this has been a really sort of high-minded discussion about the future of the party and uh next week we are about to swing in the other direction with a, a conversation about an issue that's affecting millions of americans every day uh with a a really deep dive into the mechanics and politics of predatory lending. 
Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.